Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. On today's show, Marjorie Taylor Greene says she would have organized a more successful coup. Kevin McCarthy still can't find 218 votes for speaker, and Kirsten Sinema leaves the Democratic Party. Then-Democratic Senator Brian Schatz joins to talk about democracy, the debt ceiling, Twitter, and Hanukkah. He did talk about Hanukkah. He did talk about Hanukkah. But first, Tommy is out today for the very best reason. He and Hannah are home with their new baby girl, Lizette Louise Vitor, and the happiest surprise imaginable. Uh, Hannah got pregnant a few months after their daughter Margot was stillborn, and after a very long year, uh, Lizzie arrived on Tuesday. She is beautiful, uh, and after a few scary days in the NICU, she is home and doing well, and it is just the absolute best feeling uh, seeing Hannah and Tommy just radiate joy. Yeah, really happy for them. Yeah, really happy. Uh, so best news ever. So happy and excited. And uh, Tommy will be taking some time, hopefully. We don't know how long. Until then, for us, it's takes for two. Takes for two. <laughs> <laughs> takes for two. Takes for two. That's what we're calling this episode. All right, let's get to the news. In case anyone's still wondering where the Republican Party is headed after running a bunch of election deniers and then refusing to ditch their 2024 frontrunner for dining with Nazis... We got another hint at the Young Republicans event in New York City over the weekend. I couldn't attend. Did you? you, I I assume you didn't attend either. No, no, no. I I, uh, decided to. I'm going to go to the one in L.A. The one in L.A. Right. Of course. So after the organization's president said, quote, we want total war and, quote, must be prepared to do battle in the streets. Marjorie Taylor Greene took the stage and said this. Then January 6th happens, and next thing you know, I organized the whole thing along with Steve Bannon here. And I want to tell you something. If Steve Bannon and I had organized that, we would have won. (laughs) Not to mention, it would have been armed. They say that whole thing was planned, and I'm like, are you kidding me? A bunch of conservatives, Second Amendment supporters went in the Capitol without guns, and they think that we organized that? I don't think so. First of all, I think she's overestimating her organizational prowess. Yeah, there's no evidence (laughs) that she could put together an insurrection. But uh, I also think she tells on herself a bit when she says, we would have (laughs) won. You're supposed to, uh, what? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So wild applause from the crowd, which included Don Jr., Steve Bannon, Rudy Giuliani, the publishers of a white nationalist website, V-Dare, So then the White House called on Republicans to condemn the violent, dangerous remarks. In response, Green put out a statement. She said her comments were a sarcastic joke 
sarcastic joke. Uh, and she went on in the statement to attack drag queen celebrities and a former Twitter employee fired by Elon Musk, mm-hmm. as one does. Yeah, sure. What do you think of the, it was just sarcasm defense? Uh, so It was just a joke. Didn't it sound like it was just sounded like a joke? First of all, she said a lot of things, and she meant she meant it all. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the other guy saying, you know, we want to be prepared to do battle in every arena, the media, the courtroom, the ballot box, and the streets, he means it too. She obviously, she means it. What she's saying is we could do this with guns, and we could be more successful the next time. You know... <laughs> Also, by the way, it, she's ignoring the fact that uh, they were armed. Many of them were armed. Yes. <laughs> Several people died. Several people died. Many of them were armed. Anyway, we should assume they mean this and not just in the sense that like that that guy wants like cosplay as a brown shirt when he says like we need we'll do battle in the streets. He doesn't mean he's going to do battle in the streets. He wants to he wants like vulnerable and broken, angry young men to do battle in the streets on his behalf. That, and, you know, so that enough people take this kind of rhetoric seriously that like. They'll be part of protests at a drag show. They'll be part of bomb threats at a children's hospital. They will chase librarians out of their jobs. They will firebomb <laughs> a uh, donut shop that hosted uh, a, a drag show. So that's what they—that's what they want. They're very excited about that. When they say in the streets, they're—they're—they're—they're they're, they're, they're proud and excited about the intimidation that they can unleash. Maybe they'll want a bit of—they'll—they'll they'll create some ironic distance from the actual outcomes of what they're calling for. Uh, but they want us to be intimidated. They want people to be afraid. Yeah, and look, you know. Marjorie Taylor Greene and a bunch of other Republican entertainers, pundits like this, they can say that they're just joking or trolling, you know. But Philip Bump at The Washington Post pointed out that there's an enormous amount of polling now that shows there's more sympathy for the use of violence as a political response by the right. It's been increasing. Uh, Most recently, a nonpartisan poll found that one in three Republicans agreed with the statement Because things have gotten so far off track, true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save the country. That's one in three. So she can say that she's joking. She can say that it's sarcasm, but she is speaking in the context of an environment where a third of the party that she's part of actually believes that violence could be a solution at some point. And, and you know, like I was thinking about this and there's this problem we have now where the conversation when someone says something like this, even when there's an insurrection at the Capitol, we even saw it after Dobbs, that immediately the conversation is, what could happen next? They could do contraception. They could do gay rights. They could uh, uh, come after gay marriage or even uh, uh, interracial marriage. And it's like it's like our political press is always taking laxatives. And so, like, it just runs through things really, really fast. It processes it way too quickly. And like, hey, things are pretty bad right now. We don't need to worry about what's next. And and like there's this problem with always going to the next thing. And it's it's two problems. One, it does ignore how bad things are already. But also it kind of makes everything this conversation about one big question, which is like, will America be a free and inclusive democracy where people are safe? And then everything goes into that one question. If Republican election deniers are defeated, it's seen as a rebuke to Marjorie Taylor Greene, which in some sense it is. But maybe there are two questions we're answering. And one is, will people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar and Matt Gates and, and some of these right-wing kooks, will they have power enough in the Republican Party to win elections? Maybe, maybe not. But they don't need that power to answer a different question, which is, can they make life in America demonstrably worse and scarier uh, for people that don't look and think like them. And they are already successfully doing that. That is happening all the time. So there's always this tension between wanting to highlight and condemn violent rhetoric like this and not wanting to amplify it and elevate someone like Green. We've talked about this a million times. This is the second time in two weeks that the White House has put out a statement 
not only condemning this, but then calling on every Republican leader, every leader everywhere, to also condemn this dangerous rhetoric. Why do you think they've decided to go this route? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, just politically, we did just go through a midterm election where Democrats overperformed in part because of Republican embrace of extreme people and policies. And we should force every one of these Republicans to answer for people like MTG every day, in part because when we do force them to answer for it, we find that they're terrified to do so, that they tried to avoid it as much as they can because of their own political weaknesses. Also, eight in 10 Americans right now are concerned about political violence. As much as you're right, you, there, there is a rise of violent acceptance on the part of Republicans. But at the same time, the country itself is turning against it. One reason it is important for the White House to call this out is because it's one of the biggest threats we face in this country. And that's not coming from the administration. That's coming from law enforcement officials. You start to look at the list of what has been unfolding. You have Five people murdered at the Colorado Springs massacre a few weeks ago at a gay bar called Club Q. The massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. That inspired the Poway shooter, who also tried to burn down a mosque. The El Paso massacre, the Buffalo massacre, the Highland Park massacre, the attack on Paul Pelosi, the insurrection. You have far-right goon squads menacing a drag show in Ohio. Glad counted 124 protests and attacks. Hard to differentiate between protests and attacks now because they're really harassment campaigns that run the gamut from thugs chasing drag queens down the street to broken windows and storefronts to people being forced to quit their jobs because they're terrified of being attacked. And so you have like Elon Musk on Twitter claiming that like right free speech is under attack because they took Hunter Biden's dick pics off the internet while there's like actual violence, actual threats of violence curtailing actual speech every day and like changing the way people live because they're afraid of the right wing in this country. Yeah. And, and and there's been it's a noticeable increase, right? Yeah. Like uh, just this year, right wing extremists have taken part in at least 55 actions targeting the gay community, an increase of 340 percent from just the year before in 2021 wasn't great. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's there's no it's never been great. And, you know, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, not a bunch of uh, woke liberals at the Department of Homeland Security just issued a terrorism advisory bulletin. Uh, in the last couple of weeks that warned about violent extremists targeting LGBTQ, Jewish, and migrant communities. It's happening all across the spectrum. It's targeting vulnerable communities and marginalized communities all over the country. And then, you know, at a higher level, it's Republicans just saying that, like, anyone who doesn't think like them or look like them um, is is not worthy of, of, of being safe, feeling safe in this country. And, and, you know, when people like Marjorie Taylor Greene say, oh, it was sarcastic when they say they're doing it with a wink and a nod. That is not new. That is very, very, very old. Using irony, treating it like you're being clownish, treating it like a joke, treating it like you're just trying to uh, uh, freak the libs. Like this is an old strategy for laundering hateful ideas. The, The people that know what they mean, know what they mean. And the most broken, the most dangerous, the most isolated are the people that are going to take these kinds of ideas to their logical conclusions. And these people think they can have plausible deniability by claiming it's a joke, by claiming they never actually directly encourage violence. But that's what they're stoking every day. They're just raising the temperature every single day. And on the flip side, you know, back to the question of like why the Biden folks, uh, why the White House was so quick to put out a statement. Obviously, there's a political reason. Obviously, it's just like the right thing to do. But I also think there's a practical effect here. Like we know that when leaders condemn this kind of rhetoric, they make it more difficult for their supporters to embrace it and to potentially incite that. Right. Just as Marjorie Taylor Greene and others 
by, you know, joking around <laughs> are more likely to incite this kind of violence. You can prevent this kind of violence when people in positions of authority, uh, people who a lot of people in this country look up to or take cues from, say enough is enough. There's a it can be a vicious circle or a virtuous circle between the mm. base of a party and the leaders of that party. Yeah. And Democrats, I think, were not paying enough attention to what has been happening, not just over the last six years, but over the last 30, 40 years, as that conversation got more and more heated, as uh, uh, right-wing radio and right-wing extremism found more and more quarter. And it got to the point in the Trump years where these leaders and officials felt they were no longer in charge. They no longer had the power to denounce it, that the Trump movement was not just like politically potent. It was electorally successful. And they became afraid when you see little cracks in that, when you see election deniers start to lose and you see Republicans, a few of them anyway, even if they're too afraid to actually denounce Trump by name, when you see just little bits of space, like we have to get into that space and like push them and try to make that space bigger, not just because it's going to help us defeat Republican extremists, but because that's how over the next so many years we can begin to like go in a better direction. There has to be a way out of this. Yeah. So a decent number of Republicans in Congress responded to Trump's latest bullshit by saying, oh, he's unlikely to win. He, you know, we were talking about that's a an understandable strategy and maybe an even an effective one within the context of a Republican primary. It doesn't really apply to Green. No. And most of the Republicans in Congress, most of the Republican politicians, they've been pretty quiet today. What yeah, do you think yeah. that is? Uh, I don't think they feel like they have to respond. I think they can get away with being quiet. They're probably right. Yeah. Oh, she's just a kook. You know, she's doing her kooky thing. We're kind of all it's all been a, it's all sort of baked into like the stock price of her <laughs> and nobody's pushing them. Nobody's asking them. They don't have to they don't have to account for it. I also think that Kevin McCarthy needs her to be speaker. Well, <laughs> that's why he specifically can't yeah. say anything. Right. Kevin McCarthy needs every vote. I mean, first of all, yeah, this week he wants to be speaker. He's always wanted to be speaker. Kevin McCarthy promised to put Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor, Marjorie Taylor Greene back on their committees long before he knew he was going to be in a four-seat fight to become Speaker of the House. He capitulated to these people long ago. But it, And it's like, but because he needs her to be Speaker, she knows that she now gets to say and do whatever the fuck she wants. Yeah. <laughs> Not like she was uh, holding back before. Yeah, contained. But now she knows that she has real power in the Republican Party and no one's really going to punish her because Kevin McCarthy wants to keep his job. And like, by the way, Mitch McConnell has a growing problem in the Senate too. Like he used to just have Ted Cruz. Now he's got a whole bunch of Ted Cruz's in his caucus. And so he's got to worry about that shit too. Yeah. It's not good. Uh, well, let's talk more about Kevin McCarthy, who seems to be the most miserable person in Washington right now. <laughs> that is the, that's the silver lining. Um, he needs 218 votes to become speaker. Uh, six House Republicans, known as the uh, Never Kevin movement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. Uh, have already said they won't vote for him, uh, which leaves him with 216 votes at most. And that's a lot of Republicans, especially new members, still haven't said how they'll vote. So it could be more than five or six. I think there's like four who said like no matter what, they'll never, ever vote for him. And then the fifth and sixth are sort of like in a, one said like in an extreme circumstance. He they're might. wobbly. They're wobbly enough that he could just get the votes he needs. Yeah, but he so far he doesn't have them. And but we should also say that McCarthy's opponent Andy Biggs also doesn't have anywhere no. near 218 votes. So here's what pro McCarthy Republican Don Bacon of Nebraska said the other day: "Quote: If this small group refuses to play ball, we'll work across the aisle to find an agreeable Republican." You think that's possible? <laughs> well, I think, first of all, uh, you know, uh, Don, don't threaten us with a good time here. 
that is that is uh that that is a threat that is a threat to to these republicans that's all that is a, you you, uh, you and aaron on. sorkin aren't writing the uh, uh look listen right in this episode if palm <laughs> if kevin mccarthy the only plausible bring person, us cheney bring, bring us Liz. you get cheney you get cheney did i hear speaker gottheimer <laughs> is it the problem caucus the problem solvers caucus day to rule pretty straightforward oh, from two, here yeah. speaker two cinema speaker, co-speakers <laughs> co-speakers uh speaker lieberman come on it's you know you know there's nowhere in the rule book that says a dog can't play basketball uh, yeah. So first of all, this is just a threat, but even if it's not like you just look at this, if the only plausible person who is Kevin McCarthy can't be speaker, you do get to some pretty implausible people. We will see. But right now this seems to be something you're saying to, uh, uh remind the caucus that the alternative to Kevin McCarthy isn't, uh, Jim Jordan. It's somebody that is, uh, uh palatable to, uh, a group of Democrats. Yeah. Some of the people floating being floated were like like you said Liz Cheney or yeah. or, or Justin Amash or you know yeah. there's or or some like more moderate republican but then again you would need every single house democrat to vote for this republican plus the handful of republican moderates in the house to get right. to 218 whatever number of def- whatever well whatever number of republicans were agreeing to go along with this deal Right. Right. Plus whatever Democrats, which means you have a bunch of Democrats standing up and saying, hi, I, a Democrat elected with Democratic votes in this district, hereby would like to make this Republican. Retiring member Fred Upton. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a like, tough, it's, it's tough in tough, practice. It's tough in practice. I think what it does seem like these people, we'll, we'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks. It does seem like this group of Republicans wants to embarrass Kevin McCarthy. There is little penalty for making sure that McCarthy loses the first vote. Right. Right. Like, what's that going to do? It's going to embarrass Kevin McCarthy. It's not going to hurt Republicans. Otherwise, Look, everyone listening, obviously, every single person listening to this podcast remembers in great detail the moment John Boehner lost his first vote. <laughs> Don't you? Yeah. Literally something I forgot about until these stories yeah. that, that he did. And then I remembered it. So, yeah, you could see that. Look, I, I could see a scenario where just to get him. McCarthy loses, can't get to 218, and then like Steve Scalise ends up being the consensus job for speaker, just so that the the Never Kevin movement can uh, can get their guy. <laughs> yeah, look, I, look, I look, I don't pre- I don't presume to understand the minds of the Never Kevin movement, but I don't think they understand their minds. Either. Two points about they don't either. But two points about this: one, uh, regardless of who the person is, like let's not just it's not just about personalities it is about the the structure here and whoever this person is they will be beholden to marjorie taylor green and paul gosar they will face the same problem they're all kevin mccarthy (laughs) whoever speaker of the house will be kevin mccarthy in some way or another and then the question is will these republicans rather uh uh, get kevin mccarthy's head or get some concessions uh uh, for relenting to him and to me it seems like that's the we don't know but that's the most likely likely direction we're heading in well let's talk about that so seven incoming house republicans who are still undecided these are not the same people as the never kevin movement yeah these are the maybe kevin they're maybe kevins (laughs) (laughs) all right so the seven maybe kevins uh just kevin if you're nasty (laughs) (laughs) just issued a series of demands to mccarthy what are some of them and uh and what happens if he accepts them all right here they are they make it possible for any member to force a vote on removing the speaker. Yeah, put a pin in that one. We're coming back to yeah, that one. <laughs> that's what Mark Meadows did once to fuck with Boehner. Uh, require at least three days to review the final bill text for a vote. Yeah, we've tried Whatever. that one before. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah. What are you going to do? Read it? That'll fix it. Uh, bar Republican <laughs> leaders and PACs from getting involved in primaries. So basically trying to stop the party 
from trying to save the Republican primary voter from from themselves, yeah. which they've been trying to do. To cut. Basically, this is like for Trumpy wackos. Yeah. Uh, give the Freedom Caucus members more power on committees. Use the debt ceiling as a hostage, which they want to do anyhow. And uh, go ham on investigations of the Biden administration, basically, which, again, every Republican wants to do anyhow. So it really is... The, the more positions on uh, key committees, like the rules committee and more chair jobs is a big one impossible. And the biggest one, which is basically a little uh, ejector seat <laughs> for Kevin McCarthy. Basically, this group of Republicans is saying to Kevin McCarthy, we'll, we'll let you be speaker, but we're going to have your little gavel and advice. Well, and like all the shit that McCarthy is just doing. Just going to roll by that. You're going to roll right past that, huh? Just, I'm talking about Kevin Mc, didn't uh, surprise little me, right? gavel and advice. Yeah, I, I get what you're, I, I get the reference. Kevin's gavel and advice. Yeah, yeah. Episode title, perhaps. Kevin's. Ga- <laughs> Olivia's nodding. I. <laughs> I think that demand and the debt ceiling demand are the two most yeah. consequential demands. The first one means that all the shit that Kevin McCarthy is doing right now to get the votes that he needs. Not saying anything about Marjorie Taylor. All this bullshit. He's going to be doing that in in perpetuity. If they if they can vacate him at any, at any time, moment. any ma- any member can call for a vote at any time. Any member call for it. So like it, it's, once he he'll never really have the job. He'll never sleep He's again. Always <laughs> trying out for the job. He'll never every sleep again. Day. It's no contract. Cannot, it's no contract. He, it's data. It's he, week to week. He just cannot give into that. That that I imagine there'll be some compromise there where they can call a, a, a vote to uh, a motion to vacate. But like you're going to need X percentage of the caucus to do so. You just can't have any wacko in the caucus. Call no. I mean, if we'll see if they do, then the the consensus speaker thing could actually become a reality at some point. And then the no debt ceiling increase until they get spent unless they get spending cuts in a balanced budget, quote, quote, balanced budget in 10 years. That's nuts. That's just setting it up. For, uh, I mean, I guess you could say he agrees to that. There's a plan, and then he backs down. Well, so that's whatever, that's what. Well, right? I just think it's like what, like, whatever that says. That's a policy pronouncement. If he doesn't have the votes, he doesn't have the votes. He could put up their version of a debt ceiling increase, which has all these cuts. It doesn't pass, and then he says it didn't pass. I did what you asked me to do. Now I went up to go over to Hakeem Jeffries and get yeah. the votes together. And then, to you save the happen- and then you know what happens if they get the ejector seat button. <laughs> You're uh, out. Bring a Scalise. Kevin's through the sky, through the uh, sunroof. <laughs> you get Scalise. I'm telling. This is this is Speaker Trump. Pretty we, straightforward from here. It is going to be chaos. That is the only safe prediction that and, I have. And just <laughs> it's going and, to be. You chaos. know, we didn't. We talked about this a little bit with Senator Brian Schatz later, and it's you know clearly like he is frustrated that they don't have the votes to fix the debt ceiling once and for all, but. Just remember how fucking stupid it is that we that that there aren't 51 Democratic votes to get rid of the debt ceiling to take the bullets out of this gun that the worst people in Congress are using to threaten the eighth worst worst people in Congress. Yeah, and look, this is I mean the way this goes down is there probably a majority in the House in this new House to want to make sure that we lift the debt ceiling and don't and don't hold the economy hostage for you know massive cut. Yeah, probably like your Don Bacon's and a couple other moderate Republicans. But Kevin McCarthy's speaker, whoever is the speaker, is going to be in control here. I mean, it's just going to be chaos. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference... Sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. 
And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team, East or West, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Let's talk about a huge pain in the ass on the other side of the aisle, mm-hmm. Kirsten Cinema, who announced on Friday that she has changed her party affiliation to independent right after I attempted fate on Thursday's pod by saying that at least we won't have to talk about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema for the next two years. So much for that. Cinema also said she won't caucus with the Republicans, which means the Democrats will maintain their majority and control of all Senate committees. Why'd she do it, love it? Why'd she do First it? First of all, let's just that's the most important point, by the way. Like, yeah. She will caucus with the Democrats, which means, but for the fact that we know how much of a pain in the ass uh, she has been on policy, uh, on paper, she is she is doing what Angus King and Bernie Sanders are doing. It's just that she's doing it in a way that will make it harder for us to pass our agenda. Uh, she did it because she can't win a primary in 2024. Uh, she has made herself toxic to too many Democratic voters because of how she um, uh, 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 tried to stymied joe biden's agenda so the options were face a brutal brutal democratic primary she was probably going to lose or basically kind of go full go full maverick in her mind declare herself an independent and basically do what she's doing anyway which is sometimes going along with democrats sometimes not claiming to be an independent claiming to want to work with both sides whatever kind of getting to build her brand so it's just sort of in a lot of ways it's just sort of putting the right name on the way she's been behaving for the last couple of years anyway. I just think that's such a cynical view of the okay. situation. Mm-hmm. You tell I me mean, what it is. I mean, she... You, you're going to play... She, I just okay. wanna, she gave a quote you're right. uh, to CNN and she Shame said... On me. Uh, or Politico or wherever. She <laughs> said, I know this is probably disappointing to folks, but I'm actually not even thinking about electoral politics yeah. or talking about that at all right uh-huh. now. I mean, she is so full of shit. Here's the thing. She, she like, fancies herself the next John McCain. Mm-hmm. If John McCain did something like this, you know, he'd probably say, oh, I couldn't win a primary. <laughs> so I, I couldn't win a primary, so I, uh, I'm doing this for, uh, you know. It's like, you might not like it, but I'm just going to tell you. She is so full of shit. Yes. She's so full of shit. She has, but yeah, right. She has a 
horrible approval rating among Democrats. She's underwater by a lot. She's at like 34, 35 percent among Democrats, has been for a year now. She's got like a a decent approval rating among independents and Republicans in Arizona. Overall, her favorability rating is still slightly underwater. So it's not like she's very popular in the state. It really is. It's not even like it's the best. It's the it's the only option she has, really, because I think that she would start as a significant underdog in uh, in a primary. Yeah, she just went from the underdog in her own primary to putting herself in a position to dare Democrats to risk the seat to challenge her. And it's it, let's you know, talk about that risk. Yeah, like yeah. How, how difficult do you think it will be for a Democrat to win Cinema's seat in 2024? I do think you should just a, do, a lot does depend on how she votes and acts behaves over, behaves over the <laughs> like what she does over the next two years like just where she decides to draw her dumb lines in the sand you know <laughs> the last time it was about uh, taxing hedge funds and corporations so like who knows what positions she takes that are kind of anathema to Democrats so it really does depend on what she does over the next two years and what she stands in the way of but if if the status quo ante is what it is then. It's really, really hard because any Democrat that runs against somebody who votes for Democratic judges and voted for the Inflation Reduction Act and voted for a host of really important Democratic priorities is going to be someone who splits the anti-MAGA vote. And it it's a very difficult position for the Democratic Party to be in. That said, you do see Democrats saying, great, now the primary is open, you know, which is a little bit of a bluff, but it's very, very hard. And And the reason why it's so difficult is because of Arizona's electorate. So these are are the uh, voter registration statistics as of November of 22. This is from the Secretary of State website. 35% of voters identify as Republican or registered as Republican. 31% are registered as Democrats. And 34% are registered as other. So, you know, I saw some people saying, oh, well, if all Democrats stuck together in Arizona, if all Democratic voters stuck together and voted for the Democratic candidate, like we'd be okay. Not true at all. Um, You'd need a significant number of the non-affiliated voters, independent voters. You probably need some Republicans. That's certainly Mark Kelly just won the seat with nine, 10 percent of Republicans. And he won independence by like, I think it was like 55 to 40 significant margin. So you need those independent Republican voters. Now, does that mean a Democrat like a Mark Kelly or someone like that couldn't capture a significant number of independents and Republicans? No, but you're right. She splits the vote a little bit if it's two of them going for that, because Republican voters in Arizona and by the way, the Republican Party in Arizona continues to nominate the most extreme candidates. It's not like they're nominating Doug Ducey anymore. (laughs) Yeah. And they would. And if we are heading towards a Democrat versus Kirsten Sinema versus a Republican, you'll be damn sure they're going to nominate whoever the fuck they want because they'll be pretty sure that person's going to be a senator. And like, you know, Carrie Lake got something like 91, 92 percent of Republican voters. Blake Masters, like probably the the least popular candidate in Arizona in a long, long time. Yeah, he'd be a senator. He got like 89, 90 percent of Republicans. He would in this. He would he would have won. So, so if you get some of the Republican candidate getting 89, 90 percent of the Republican vote and then you have two other candidates splitting Democrat and independent vote, that's really tough. It's really tough. And the numbers I just said were the voter registration statistics in the midterm in terms of who came out to vote in 2022. The midterms in Arizona were 27 percent Democratic, 33 percent Republican and 40 percent independent. That is. And by the way, like 
let, let's not talk about this as if the Democrats a spoiler. In that scenario, the spoiler is a person named Kirsten Cinema. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and as we've seen, no one is a better team player than Kirsten Cinema. Imagine all of us sitting around the table trying to figure out how to convince Kirsten Cinema to drop out of the race because she's drawing 13% against Ruben Gallego. Right. And costing us the Senate seat. Like, there is some, like, ugly, fucking, terrible outcomes. And that's why it's a very, very frustrating, it was a very frustrating uh, weekend. Yeah. And look, I don't, I mean, Ruben Gallego's out there saying what I think he should be saying, which is like, I'm not going to make my decision based on of course her not. threat or her bluff or whatever the hell she's trying to do. I'm going to make it based on what I think is right. It's also interesting that he is already focusing in his statements, and the Arizona Democrats did this as well. They're focusing their statements like not on her betraying the party uh, for Republicans or for whatever, but her betraying the people who elected her by, you know, voting with wealthy donors, right? She helped, uh, killed carried interest for the hedge fund assholes. She uh, made the prescription drug provision uh, weaker for the drug companies, right? Because as much as we are frustrated by her kind of bullshit rhetoric around, I'll work with anybody and, you know, I'm just looking out for whatever. I don't believe in either party. A good idea can come from anywhere. All the stuff people say, it's a really good message. It really appeals to people. I'll work with anybody. We got to turn down the temperature. I'm independent. I do what's best for Arizona. Like yeah. these things do well. Yeah. And it's just annoying because it's all vibes, right? Like if she vibes. came out and said, look, uh, here's here's three issues where I just am, am totally different from my party. Just don't just don't believe them. And then here's the issues where I align with the Republicans. Here's where I align with the Democrats. And I just I have no you know, it was not about issues. It was no substance in any of her announcement. No. It was all just uh, it's vibes all vibes. Thing. And by the way, like the way in which she like stood in the way of uh, uh, build back better was around like a f- like a, a few tax issues which are extremely rich, unpopular. It's rich people shit. It's real <laughs> like just her refusal to raise taxes on the biggest corporations and the richest people in her state. Like she took extremely unpopular positions, positions especially unpopular with independents, to stymie some of the uh, democratic proposals. Yeah, but again, next two years, she's still going to be the same pain in the ass she was for the last two years. Yeah. <laughs> At least when in terms of governing, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll figure it out when we get to 2024. But hey, at least, listen, we still increased our majority by one. Yeah. So now we don't need both mansion and cinema every time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in terms of how she'll behave over the next two years and which, how she'll vote, the other issue here is like there's not going to be a ton of legislation over the next two years. It's going to be uh, confirming judges and uh, administration officials. That's going to be mainly. Yeah. And, then, and, and, and then whatever happens with the debt ceiling. And whatever happens, and whatever with, happens, happens with, with the, the debt ceiling. ceiling. Who knows? Who knows? All right. Uh, we will talk about the debt ceiling and more with our next guest, Senator Brian Schatz, right after this. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, Sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year. 
going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. On the pod today, Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz. Welcome back to the pod. Great to be here. Nice to see you both. Shots, shots, shots. You were supposed. Yeah, we were to, you supposed said to, to do. We were going to do I it. I don't know. I thought someone was going to do that. We have a whole, we have a whole staff. <laughs> we we're going to play. We we're going to play that that song. Can't you do that in post, as they say? We know yeah. what we can do that in post. Thanks yeah, for guess. thanks for letting us know that we that's we run, right, a, we'll we run a podcast in, company. We'll do it in post. Uh, all right. There's a lot on Congress's plate between now and the end of the year. Not much time. What are you pushing hardest to get done? What can you live without? <laughs> Uh, well, let me start with, I mean, look, we need an omnibus spending package because, um, you know, I, I don't want to immediately jump into jump, uh, Kevin McCarthy's travails, but he's going to have a tremendously difficult time passing any budget. So whatever budget we pass is likely to be the budget for the next two years. And so while we still have a democratic control of both chambers, it's really important to move forward with an omnibus spending package in the next uh, two weeks. And then for me, I'm working on making sure that a, a number of bills for um, Indian tribes, uh, Alaska Natives, and Native Hawaiians uh, pass as part of that package. Is the uh, Electoral Count Reform Act going to get done? I think so, but we're sort of like, it It all depends on whether or not we have a big bill. If we don't have a big bill, then none of these other things are going to pass. And I like the Electoral Count Act, and I've sort of had some internal disagreements with some of my colleagues about it because it's good. It's fine. But um, you can't outlaw insurrection. Insurrection is already illegal. And so I really do worry that, um, especially for Republicans, but even Democrats, they want to sort you know, when all you have is a hammer, everything feels like a nail, everything looks like a nail. And so I do feel like everyone's thinking, wow, that was really terrible. We should make a law against it. And my (laughs) own view is that um, they're going to have better uh, white shoe law firms. They're going to be very clever about it. And there is, I don't know how successful they will be, and I don't know how big the movement will be, but the people who want to overthrow the government are going to try to do it in a way that has the veneer of lawfulness. So the Electoral Count Act doesn't really um, push back against that. So let's get that done, but let's stay vigilant because insurrectionists are going to do what they're going to do. Yeah, I mean, look, that's something we've talked about uh, on this pod a fair amount, which is, uh, yeah, pass the laws to do what you can to strengthen the system, but understand that this is about power. Like when you say stay vigilant, you know, they will bend the laws however they wish. They've already been doing that, right? They already, I mean, the fact that even we're having this conversation is because they made up something about what the vice president can do. What does staying vigilant mean to you? 
Well, I just think the the I mean, first of all, I think it was the the most important thing that happened was in the was in the midterm elections when um, election denialism, insurrectionism proved to be unpopular, right? Because there's no amount of shaming of the other side that actually is going to do the trick. What they have to figure out is that this is a loser. And um, it's proven to be a loser for them. And so that, to me, was the most important thing. But to the extent that anybody puts their name on the ballot in 2024, for the U.S. Senate, for Secretary of State, for the legislature, or for president, that should be immediately disqualifying and not just like one of the considerations, right? It is the one thing you can't do is vote for someone who says, well, if I don't win, then it's probably rigged and we're going to have to take other measures. That's not okay. And we have to stay vigilant on that level. And I think there's just a lot of people on Twitter who like to um, sort of scold people who worry about democracy because it, it allows them to feel like they're clever and they're really in touch with what people really think. But I think that proved to be bullshit. People actually care about insurrectionism. They don't want American style democracy to be destroyed, whatever their view is of tax rates or whatever. I, do you think Republicans have learned any lessons from their losses in this midterm from the fact that election denialism was a loser? We got, you know, Trump's dining with the Nazi uh, and, you know, a lot of your Republican colleagues in the Senate. You know, there was some uh, there was some chiding of him, but there wasn't any like like no one was ruling out uh, voting for him or supporting him for president, except I think Mitt Romney. We have Marjorie Taylor Greene over the weekend saying like if me and Steve Bannon uh, had planned the insurrection, uh, it would have been successful. Now we're going to have another round of Republicans trying to dodge uh, <laughs> these questions from reporters. Like what what do they learn any lessons? Have you have you have you seen this in, in at least from uh, your perspective with your colleagues? Uh, I'm going to be cautious not to characterize it as, um, you know, people learning lessons. Right. But I will yeah. say that increasingly some of my Republican colleagues just feel like Donald Trump is not good for them and they're not afraid to say it. And that is a is a directional change from everything I've seen before. They feel that they can win a primary um, as incumbent United States senators and still be considered conservatives in good standing and just sort of observe that, hey, we've kind of gotten our ass kicked over the last several cycles and maybe it's time to move on. So I don't know if it's like internalizing a lesson so much as reading how the public responded. And that's where I think um, the activism and the success of the midterms, you know, can't be overstated because it was the voters that sent the right message to the Republicans who want to stay in office that this isn't good for business anymore. So uh, let's talk about uh, Democrats for a second. Uh, you know, you mentioned the omnibus. You didn't mention the debt ceiling is uh, have mentioned in cinema just made that impossible. Oh, well, former Democrats have mentioned in cinema made that impossible. What's happening with the debt ceiling? Uh, I don't think it's necessarily Mansion and Cinema, and I'm not giving up. I have a bill. There's lots of like clever ways to do this, where you sort of, you know, make it subject to congressional disapproval. And my my bill is even simpler than that. It just repeals the goddamn thing. It's stupid, um, yeah. and um, and is dangerous to the country. Um, but if I had to guess, I don't think we're getting 60 votes on an omnibus bill that includes the repeal of the debt ceiling, or even some sort of more convoluted way to to land there. So I'm going to keep pushing, but. You know, I think it's important that your listeners hear what's actually happening and not just what we wish would happen. And over the next two weeks, likelihood of getting debt ceiling into a bill is, you know, not zero, but not super high. We have kind of high degree of difficulty over the next two to three weeks just to get our work done. And and yes, it is true that this leaves a ticking time bomb, you know, for next summer um, fiscally and for the country. 
Um, so I'm not happy about that, but that is the state of play. But this is what I can't understand is like what it, obviously you could attach it to a budget reconciliation bill. I realize that, that takes a lot of time and is very complicated. But I felt like I feel like if every Senate Democrat felt like you, that we have this ticking time bomb that now we're going to trust Kevin McCarthy and his gang of uh, yahoos to defuse next year. We might as well, like, figure out how to do this now while we still can if we could do it with 51 votes. Yeah, I mean, I so so I haven't done the whip count on what would what would happen in reconciliation. I will say reconciliation takes two weeks and we have mm. to get an omnibus and a defense bill done in the next two weeks. So like logistically, yeah, it's going to be hard. But I guess my my view is we we should be very clear eyed about the consequences of um, <clears throat> not fulfilling our obligations, not um, standing by the full faith and credit of the United States. But we should not run around scared of the Republicans on the debt ceiling. My view on debt ceiling since I got to the Senate now uh, uh, just over 10 years ago is in exchange for lifting the debt limit, you get nothing. Um, and I, I think you you guys learned and, you know, I'm yeah. not, to bring, not to bring up old shit, but but you guys <laughs> learned that um, that what you ended up with when you negotiated over the debt ceiling was was something called sequestration, which were these stupid, draconian, mindless cuts to domestic discretionary spending. And everybody hated it until we finally repealed it. And so after that, Obama and then even Trump and certainly Schumer and Pelosi and now Biden ought to have the view, you get nothing for lifting the debt ceiling. That's what you get. And you can make all the noise you want and all of the politicos and the axioses and the hills and, and the Washington Post will come to me and put a microphone in my face and say, hey, but aren't you scared about the global economy? And I will say, yes, but I am more scared. I am more scared of allowing these people to do this to us episodically whenever they want to extract crazy concessions um, and hold the whole country hostage. And the last, I guess, probably six times that we've gone through this and our position has been you get nothing for this. They have gotten nothing for this. It's always very scary. And it's like making my palms sweat just thinking about it. But yeah. they've gotten nothing. But okay. yeah, but you're already pitching. You're, so look, just what just happened to me at this and at this table is you just pitched forward. You're just you just moved on to the conversation we're going to have when we don't do it right now. You're just already having that conversation. We're on to the next thing. But the, the, so you just think we're going to have another situation where the Republicans are going to put a gun to their own head and threaten to shoot. That's what's happening next year. I think that's going to happen like every six weeks. Yeah, it's not it's not great. But I get what you, I get. I get you get nothing is the yeah, you, we does, love I know why that needs to be the position, because otherwise they don't have don't, the votes. I know. But, but like, I know they don't have the votes, but like there are we have a majority. They they just do they not hear this argument? What is the argument you're hearing back about why not to do this right now? They're afraid of the ads in two years. Like, I don't understand. There is a it is a it is so fucking stupid. <laughs> why aren't we fixing this? Why why aren't there 50 votes to fix this? Um, I can't tell you why there aren't 50 votes. <laughs> I'm just in the business of counting. And I don't think we have the votes to do that right now. Yeah. Yeah. Kirsten Cinema, how are you feeling about the party switch? <laughs> You know, I, I'm neutral, right? Like I think uh, Murph said it exactly right the other day, which is like not that much changes. Um, uh, she has been very explicit that she's not going to interfere with the subpoena authority or the ability for the majority to be the majority, right? We're not going to be in the old power sharing arrangement as if it were 50-50. And my view is like Kirsten votes how she wants to vote. She behaves how she wants to behave. And that's not going to change very much because all this does is like commemorates 
um, her actual political position, which is that she is um, she leans left on some issues and right on some issues, and she keeps her own counsel and sometimes works with works with us and sometimes doesn't. You think the uh, you think the DSCC should recruit a uh, candidate for Arizona in twenty twenty four? Uh, I you listen. Oh wow, that was a hard one. <laughs> we I talked about know. it beforehand. We tried to come up with the hardest one. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, I think the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee um, has an obligation to elect Democrats, um, but it is a little different when you're talking about, say, Angus King, who's an independent who caucuses with the Democrats. Um, you know, we don't support a Democrat to run against. Angus King. So I think part of what has to happen over the next six to 12 months is to figure out where Kirsten's head is at, um, where the Democratic Party of Arizona's head is at, and sort of have a, you know, a respectful discussion and negotiation. That's above my pay grade. But, you know, I get along very well with Kirsten, uh, believe it or not. Um, we work together on a number of things. And so, you know, I'm hoping this lands well. Everybody's being so nice. I mean, uh, yeah. What are you? What else are you gonna do? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, on Twitter, you have a new gig as uh, as deputy conference secretary. What's what's that all about? Well, what's, I think it's the job there. Look, I think um, uh, Chuck Schumer um, and I have had conversations over the last two or three weeks about how I can just be more helpful. And really, what that means is I'm in the sort of official leadership, which has a Monday meeting where they kind of set the course for um, the um, for the week. Um, I, my buddy back home, who's not in politics, texted me and said, what does this mean? I said, think of me as a very low ranking person in the room where it happens. Um, uh, uh, last year, I as de a deputy, a chief deputy whip, I was like junior varsity uh, leadership. And now I'm on the varsity, but not a starter. Do you think it's going to be a problem culturally that you don't remember the Bay of Pigs? <laughs> <laughs> like personally? Yeah. yeah. Like you don't remember, you don't remember unfolding and being like, I hope it works. Ah, <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's like well, well just so we're clear cory booker is in the leadership and he's yes like, yes you and cory booker neither one i'm not claiming that cory booker remembers the bay of pigs <laughs> <laughs> here's a policy question you're one of the biggest climate hawks in congress what do you make of this news that uh the department of energy plans to announce that they've made a fusion energy breakthrough that could create zero carbon power yeah it's a huge deal um <clears throat> it's a big technological breakthrough but remember there are a lot of um uh, uh ready to go technologies so, and the question is deployment. This is a big te technical breakthrough. It's unclear what it will mean for energy markets over the next 10 to 20 years. And I do worry that like, just because uh, climate change is so terrifying that there's a little bit of moral hazard of kind of like, you know, hitching your wagon to whatever the latest technological breakthrough is and say, well, great. That way we don't have to make any of the investments or transitions that we were fearing. Um, and there's this new magical energy source. The truth is there's an old magical energy source called, called the sun, and, <laughs> and, and, and we still have wind energy, both of which are now coming in cheaper than coal, and in some instances, uh, natural gas. So I just want us to be excited about this technological development, but understand that there's no silver bullet on the climate side. There's just a lot of things that we have to do at once. And this is one of the um, incredible opportunities in front of us. We should think of it that way, but as a part of a strategy, not as a, something that obviates the need to take other actions. Makes sense. Here, here's something I know uh, you might have some thoughts on. It's a New York Times headline. Critics say Musk has revealed himself as a conservative. It's not so simple. Yeah. I mean, look, I, first <laughs> of all, lots of CEOs, most CEOs are conservative. So like that, that doesn't bother me on its face. And I'm not going to get into the platform itself. But I just do think really smart people who work for the New York Times 
um, are intentionally obtuse, uh, are, are are intentionally hazy and gauzy with their language. And I know um, Lovett's talked about this for a long time, that somehow that is sort of a substitute for being actually savvy or real analysis, that their favorite thing to say is, well, it's not quite as simple as all those people on the internet say. And it's sort of like, you have to work so goddamn hard to to read all these tweets and look at all this behavior and think, well, it's really impossible to decipher his <laughs> his um, politics. And like I said, I don't really care about this, except that you still have the most powerful media platform, uh, mainstream media platform on the planet being intentionally dumb about things. And that's a little maddening, especially um, given its history and our history over the last seven years. It's pretty it's pretty frustrating because Elon Musk has now tweeted like, Prosecute Fauci, vote DeSantis, vote Republicans, the woke virus, destroy humanity. And it's like, where, but but what does it mean? <laughs> yeah. but speaking of Twitter, uh, uh, reports that basically the White House's view on Twitter is that it really just has kind of two functions. One is to influence uh, uh, elite opinion and elite journalists. And the other is to convince uh, uh, progressives on Twitter to bully those people. <laughs> uh, two important and valuable uses in our society. And so they're not seeing, they're not kind of, they're not, they're not hooked on to the Elon as a national emergency uh, train. Where where are you at on this? I don't think it's a national emergency. I think there are, there are um, you know, for instance, Ro Khanna's email. I got asked by a reporter, what do you think about Ro Khanna's email being disclosed? And I thought, well, look, if, uh, if a congressman is emailing a company that congressman does not actually have a reasonable expectation of privacy. I think the threshold would the Rubicon would be would be um, would be crossed if uh, a member's DMs were uh, were disclosed mm. um, and those were not to the company, right? But an official correspondence from a member of Congress to a company is like that, to me that's reasonably fair game. Question becomes when uh, Musk uh, feels uh, you know under siege. Does he then weaponize the data that he's in possession of? I don't know the answer to that, but I want to be very, very precise with our language because in case that ever does happen, I don't want to have cried wolf just because a congressman wrote a letter to a company. I mean, if I write a letter to a company, I fully expect that that's going to be, you know, public yeah. communication. But you're sticking around on Twitter still. You're you're staying. Yeah, I know I'm, like, I'm not trying to advertise for the platform, but my own personal user experience has not changed hardly at all, except that the main topic on Twitter seems to be its owner, which is a little brutal. bit of a bummer, but something that I, I feel like over time will work itself out. It is brutal. You're not, are you not tooting on Mastodon? <laughs> By the way, I'm too stupid to, to figure out Mastodon. I got That's on, how I feel. I just, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to people, do that. People talked about Post, but I'm just, like, I'm lazy to set up myself on another platform. That's how I feel. What do you think when an office has massive Christmas decorations, including a huge tree, and then there's just like one tiny shitty little menorah off to the side? I think it's anti-Semitic. I do. Okay. Thank you. I should say at this point that in our office, there is a menorah that is so large, mm -hmm. there's like a, a machine that's like keeping it inflated. Yeah. That, that makes noise down the hall. So it's very, we have a very large So now menorah. John's worried about a big Jewish machine. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. See, this is how it happens. It's I just wanted in. everyone to be clear that that's not our office you know, is talking you, about. You don't need a Balenciaga jacket and a ski mask, uh, all right, did, to be part of the problem. I did not see that coming, John. <laughs> Last question. I saw on, uh, speaking of Twitter, I saw on Twitter uh, you, you tweeted that you're going to look into these fucking scam texts that we all keep getting. Are you, are you looking into this? Yeah, What's going on there? 
Actually, I tweeted it and then I was just like, I didn't text my legislative staff to see who would follow up, who reads my <laughs> tweets and makes the things that I tweet true. Um, I did get a couple of texts from my staff, but apparently the FCC actually has already started the rulemaking process on right. Sam texts. So I'm going to follow up with uh, Jessica Rosenworcel, who's the chair of the FCC, who is only there because we have a Democratic Senate and who is um, working on a rule to uh, crack down on these things. That is fantastic. That might be one of the most popular things uh, the government does in a while. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. That's cool. Brian Schatz, it's wonderful as always to have you on Pod Save America. Great to see Thank you guys. You, yeah. Thanks for Happy the time. Hanukkah. Merry Happy Christmas. Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. And, and we're saying Merry Christmas again. And we are, we are saying. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. See you guys. Thanks to Brian Schatz for joining us today, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Thanks, Senator Schatz. Shots, shots, shots. This is where we play it. Yeah, play it right now. (laughs) Should I tell the people that I'm getting rid of my Tesla? (laughs) I can't do it anymore. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producers are Haley Muse and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineered the show. Thanks to Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Sandy Gerard, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montu. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash podsaveamerica. America.